Good evening and welcome to Point of View. I'm Chris Berg. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up, uh, just this past Saturday, Dr. Deborah Burks, we all know her from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. She was in Fargo up at NDSU, so I had a chance to interview with, do a one-on-one -on -one interview with her. Also, Scott Hennens, we're going to share some of that conversation with you coming up in just a few moments because some fascinating new information about COVID-19 testing that I want to share with you. You're going to be like, I knew it. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. We just couldn't prove it at the time. So we'll get to that in a moment. I want to start here tonight because we see all these hot spots of violence and riots across our great nation right now. I know for many of us, it's, it's a very painful time. You watch the news and you're just like, what is happening right now? Like, what is going on across this nation that we want to continue to tear ourselves apart? So I want to play a clip for you from this. I, I, I love this woman now. We played a clip of her last week for you. It's Julia Jackson. It's Jacob Blake's mom. She was on CNN. I was like... Man, she's dropping some wisdom right there. So just this past week, as we all know, her son is in the hospital. I mean, essentially fighting for his life. He's now paralyzed. So to give you some context, imagine that this has happened. Her son's paralyzed, and Julia Jackson steps up in a presser and says this. And spiritually, I also have been praying even before this, for the healing of our country. God has placed each and every one of this, us in this country because he wanted us to be here. Clearly you can see by now that I have beautiful brown skin, but take a look at your hand and whatever shade it is, it is beautiful as well. Amen. Yes. How dare we hate what we are? We are humans. God did not make one type of tree or flower or fish or horse or grass or rock. How dare you ask him to make one type of human that looks just like you? I'm not talking to just Caucasian people. I am talking to everyone. White, black, Japanese, Chinese, red, brown. No one is superior to the other. The only supreme being is God himself. Please, let's begin to pray for healing for our nation. We are the United States. Have we been united? Do you understand what's going to happen when we fall? Because a house that is against each other cannot stand. Amen. Divided house cannot stand. We talked about this last week with a dairy farmer on from Wisconsin, talking about she, every time and at a certain day, her and her family pray you know, for President Trump. But I would encourage you to be praying for our nation. When I listened to that earlier today, I'm thinking, Second Chronicles 7.14, if you haven't read it lately, please go read really that entire chapter. But I mean, it's 
Fantastic. Um, one of you emailed us in and said this. I want to share their point, of view, their point of view with you. It says, Chris, thanks so much for what you do. If you feel this is worth posting, I appreciate the anonymous posting. I don't want to pass judgment on anyone, just an observation. With that said, I do support our law enforcement community. They get it far, they get it right far more than they get it wrong. More funding for more training for both officers and the public. He goes on to say, or she, sadly, another black man shot this time in Kenosha. Everyone knows he was shot by an officer doing his job protecting citizens of this great country. Again, several lives affected negatively by this shooting. Again, I ask, when will people learn you won't come out ahead arguing with officers on the street? When told to stop, you stop. When you're told you're under arrest, take your day in court. This man's children were forever negatively affected by this man's actions. Uh, had he once thought of his children at the very least, escalation would not have taken place at the driver's door of a car with his children in the back seat. The officers and their families are also going to be affected for the rest of their lives. Please, I beg of you, obey the police and take your day in court. It is truly sad to see how our great country is being needlessly ripped apart. And I wanted to share that email with you because, you know, it's obviously a point of view right there, but I think it also falls in line with the mom, as I just showed you, Julia Jackson, of Jacob Blake. And so when you can have those two different points of view saying, look, and by the way, I didn't play this for you because I don't want to use up all tonight's show just on you know what she said. But she goes on to say in that soundbite I just played for, hey, I'm praying for the police. I'm praying for all of our first responders for our city. So very wise words from Julia Jackson. All right, we're going to get to my interview with Dr. Deborah Burks here in just a moment. But I get the sense that what I'm about to share with you, many of you are going to be like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. This is some new news. It just came out about the coronavirus and the testing. This is via the New York Times of all places. All right, so let's show you the title of this article. It says your coronavirus test is positive. Maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe, meaning maybe it shouldn't be a positive test. The story is stunning if you go read it. And yet I think it speaks volumes of, again, how you and I have been feeling about this situation the whole time. Here's essentially what this story is saying. I'll sum it up for you. You can go to our Facebook page if you want to read it in its entirety. But right now, basically you go in to take a COVID test and it tells you one, one or two simple things. Either you're positive or you're negative and that's it. Either you are positive or negative for coronavirus and that is it. Here's the problem is that the test right now that we're utilizing, they don't actually show you what your viral load is. How much of this virus are you actually carrying so you potentially could infect somebody. So wait till you hear this. Based on data from New York, Massachusetts, and Nevada, they recently recorded over 45,000 cases of COVID. So there were 45,000 people in those three states that tested positive for COVID. But according to this data, only 10%, 10%, so what, 4,500 of those people that tested positive actually had enough viral load to go and infect another person in order for it to, obviously what I'm saying is for that to be contagious. So take a moment and think about this. We have shut down an economy. We are quarantining people, potentially 90% of them that would have never infected anybody in the first place. Not ever. I mean, think about how many elderly people right now that are in long-term care that you were told you couldn't go see. And now according to this new data, you may have never been able to infect anybody in the first place. How many businesses have shut down because these governors want to say, hey, we're going to have all these executive orders and everyone's got to do X, Y, and Z. And yet, according to this data, I'm not saying this is widespread across the nation, but according to these data, 90% of the people would have never infected a single person in the first place. You read this article and you've got a bunch of doctors from Harvard and different places going, 
I can't believe we're just going with yay or nay and not looking at actual viral load to determine if, hey, is this person actually going to be a super spreader or not? So stunning, stunning details and news there. Now, with all that being said, the CDC did recently changed their testing guidelines saying that people that are asymptomatic should not be tested. So when Dr. Burks was in town on Saturday, I asked her about this. You're going to get your take on where the CDC just changed their testing guidelines where if you're asymptomatic, you don't need to take a test. I'd love your assessment on that, Dr. Burks. And then Governor Burgum, I know you're very pro-testing, so do you want to follow those guidelines or just keep testing? Well, you can imagine that was a very robust debate uh, <laughs> within the task force. And there are elements um, that people, I, I realize, we probably didn't order the sections correctly. Because if you get to the third page, it talks about testing for public health surveillance and ensuring that you do that. And so we probably should have started there. That was very much about diagnostic testing, um, and at the back was the surveillance testing. And so we're really working on, um, after the feedback, and the feedback's been terrific, is to really <laughs> order things so that people understand there is really critical surveillance testing. And some people even go as far as calling it assurance testing. To me, it's surveillance testing. You're really looking for those asymptomatic cases. That's included in, on page two and three. Starting out very much, it really was about the drive-throughs and really ensuring that in the drive-throughs and some of these, when you have an outbreak, how you prioritize to really, because we have treatment now, you really want to find them quickly, get them on treatment. And so that was about that. So we're going to reorder, probably talk about what you need to do for surveillance and preventing outbreaks and what you need to do for diagnostics. So is there any pressure? Because President Trump has often said, hey, the more you test, the more cases you're going to have. Was there any pressure from the White House to put out these new guidelines to help mitigate the number of tests that are happening? So you, I'm from the White House, and I did talk about the importance of testing and the importance of surveillance testing. And I have to say the administration has never asked me in all of my trips to now 22 states to change what I talk about from a public health standpoint and really communicating to the American people how important it is both to find the asymptomatics, but the, at the same time ensuring you can rapidly diagnose those with symptoms so that they can get these successful treatments that we talked about so that they can have a better outcome. Thank you. So clearly I didn't have the New York Times piece on Saturday, but do you, do you see the disconnect? She's talking about, hey, we've got to go out and do the surveillance testing. We've got to find the asymptomatics where really what we should be focused on right now is, okay, let's go find people that may be testing positive. So I'm not saying we diminish the testing, but let's have an idea, a metric of what's the viral load? I mean, if you don't have a viral load that's going to be contagious and affect anybody, then I don't need to have you quarantined. I mean, so it is, it is a breakthrough hopefully in how we're going to approach this now in the future so also on saturday um scott hennon from what's on your mind radio he and i had a chance to do one-on-one -on -one interviews with dr deborah berg so what i'm going to do for you tonight there's more if you want to go see it on our facebook page just go to facebook.com forward slash pov now but i'm going to start with uh, the first question from Scott Hannon, because as Deborah Burks is traveling around, she goes into cities and kind of does a little assessment as she goes into diners and things like that. So I wanted to play that for you tonight. But also, recently there was breaking news that um, the federal government spent $750 million, million on Abbott lab tests, and they were going to then purchase $150 million of those tests. So what you're going to see in the second question is, I asked Dr. Burks, okay, now we've got all these tests, how are you going to determine how they get distributed across our great country?
Good little tour of our state. And I the, always do. Yeah. Yes. Now we like me. to drive around. We drive. We eat. We drive. We go through communities. We like to know how people live, how the community is interacting. I think it's really important because our way through this is community members helping each other. How, how'd we do, by the way, compared to others? You know, in certain locations, people were very good about wearing their masks and social distancing. In other locations, still within Fargo, not so much. And so I think really it's something that we have to really work on together as a community. I think retailers can be really important for that. You know, if they put up signs, no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no entry, <laughs> that really helps um, because people, it's just a matter of remembering. You know, it's not anyone intentionally usually not wearing their mask. It's just, it's hard to remember all the time to wear a mask. It was the, the 150 million tests. How do we determine how that gets distributed? So we're looking right now based on what the need is. Another amount of vulnerable individuals in that state, the number of individuals with comorbidities, the number of tribal nations, the number of schools that have gone back to school in K through 12, the number of universities that have gone back because it's about keeping things open and keeping things moving forward and protecting the vulnerable. So really aligning the tests. Those tests will then, like the remdesivir and, and the treatment that we put out, will go through the governor's office to really, the governors know where things are needed. We're just allocating volumes and they're allocating specifics. Do you want to add anything to that, Governor? Nope. Uh, governor Burgum had a piece at a conference one day that went hyper viral where he said, you know, let's not make these masks political and they seem to have done that. Why what what how do you make any sense of that? What happened? Well, I don't see that. So don't, okay. I, I don't see that at all. I've been across the South with Republican governors and um, Democratic governors. I saw um, Governor John Bell Edwards put in a mask mandate, and next door I saw Governor Ivey put in a mask mandate, and a few weeks later I saw the governor of Mississippi put in his mask mandate. So, you know, I don't see that. I see governors really focused on the data to really say, how do I stop the spread of this in my communities? And this is these are the things that we can see are working. And so I see it's more about using data for information and then convincing the public that that's what it means. So a lot of people on here, it's Facebook Live, they're saying, okay, you've got some anecdotes about the, the benefits of masks. Do you have any specific scientific studies to demonstrate that it mitigates the spread of COVID? Do you have any conclusive studies about that? Well, there's a lot of science behind it because there's, there's droplet physicists. So there are people that have studied this from the physics standpoint. And so that's very evident. I think what we wanted to see is move that from the physics of a laboratory to real life on the ground. And now we can see that impact. You can see it in Phoenix, Arizona. Two weeks after they put in a mass mandate, their cases peaked and started coming down. This is why case after case after case, we can line up when the mass mandate was put in, which really means that retail was requiring it, so then communities saw that it was important and they did it. And so that's how we can really see, we can see the public health value now, which I think is really your question. What data do we have on the public health value? I think we have very firm data on the public health value now. So one of the great questions is, what's the metric you're gonna use? Cause you talk about being very data driven to, to for the CDC to say, okay, we no longer have to wear a mask. What would that metric be? You know, that is, that's a big debate right now. <laughs> Because it's, it's a really debate about when don't you need any mitigation. Okay. Um, so I think most people would agree that they would want to have all retail open, 
all K through 12 schools back <clears throat> and all universities fully functioning. And as we do those things, I would imagine we would keep the mass mandate in through each of those and show that we can keep cases down. And then after you have cases down and all of those things moving forward, then you can start withdrawing mitigation efforts to see the impact. But you certainly don't want to take them off when you don't have everything open and fully functioning in a state. Thank you. Two more quick questions for you. I know you've studied immunology. Um, many people are asking, why are we not doing more as a government to educate people about how they can build their immune system? And if we did that, would that help mitigate the spread of this? We don't have specific data that people with weaker immune systems have a more ser serious outcome. In fact, we have cancer survivors that have gotten very aggressive chemotherapy that don't have the other comorbidities that haven't had a higher mortality rate when you match for age from those who didn't have cancer. So we don't have a direct link between immunologic health and outcomes. What we do have an, a direct link from is if you have these comorbidities, which also can impact your immune system. So I don't wanna trivialize that. We know diabetes and some of these other um, instances do impact your ability to fight off diseases. But we don't have a direct link that says that this particular virus preys on people with any kind of specific immune deficiency. But the comorbidities, you do take, take into account? The comorbidities in general, like if you have hypertension, we don't believe that you have attenuated your immune okay. response. We don't see that in vaccines or our prior um, immunizations. So we don't really have that evidence base. We've also been looking very carefully at HIV survivors, um, and we haven't seen a high mortality rate disproportional because they have HIV. But what we do know is because they are concerned, they've been very good about social distancing and wearing a mask. So they're, they've been our, our really our poster of how to really prevent getting infected. Last question where you've got five tribal nations here. You mentioned earlier that uh, you see Native Americans are one of the most susceptible to this. What, why is that? Is it something within their genetic makeup or how do you explain that? So not necessarily more susceptible, but more likely to have a more serious outcome. And that is because of the level of comorbidities. And also, they may have more community spread if it gets into the tribal nation because they often have multi-generational households. So in multi-generational households where, again, young people are living with older people, again, the young people might bring it into the household asymptomatically and spread it to that vulnerable individual that may have difficulty with their weight, be a little overweight, have diabetes or hypertension, which we know leads to a more out, a significant outcome. So the housing situation may make them more susceptible to transmission, and the comorbidities we know make people more susceptible to a more severe outcome. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate Thank you. it. A lot of great stuff there. We'd love to know your point of view on that. If you want to see more of what Dr. Burks had to say, you can just go to our Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash POV now. We've got the full interview up there, plus the full presser, which is probably about 40, 45 minutes if you want to take that in as well. Thank you so much to Dr. Burks for coming to Fargo. It's great to have her here. And please share your point of view with us. You can email us, text us, leave us a voicemail. We'll be right back.